0: Welcome to the Wonder Women Tech Show, where we highlight, celebrate, and amplify women in BIPOC voices. We're bringing Wonder Women Tech to the airwaves. I'm your host, Lisa Mae Brunson. Lisa Mae Brunson with the Wonder Woman Tech Show, and I'm thrilled to have someone who I think is just amazing advocating for Black girls and women in STEM. Cynthia Chapel is an innovative scientist, an advocate for Black girls and women, and a champion for equity. She is the founder of Black Girls Do STEM, An organization offering exploration of STEM career pathways through hands-on engaging curriculum in the areas of science, technology, engineering, and mathematics to middle and high school Black girls. Cynthia designs innovative ways to introduce young Black girls to STEM industries and cultivate diversity, equity, and inclusion within the STEM workforce. Cynthia received her Bachelor of Chemistry degree from Indiana University, Purdue University at Indianapolis, and her Master of Science in Chemistry from Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville. She most recently spent five and a half years as senior research and development chemist in the manufacturing industry, where she specializes in coding technologies for electrical and electronic markets. Cynthia, welcome to the show. Yay. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I'm excited to have you here. We've had the opportunity to have you part of our Wonder Women Tech ecosystem Mm -hmm. for a few years now because you were one of our speakers before.
1: Yes. Yes. And I got to participate in the virtual one, too, that
0: happened during COVID last year. Oh, so you're like really an alumni. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. And it's not that I forgot that. I, I, I forgot <laughs> that you've been with us a couple of times. Yeah. There are so many of you amazing, amazing women.
1: Yes. Honored to be among the fray. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and what a fray it is. So can you share a bit about your history? What was your childhood like growing up in Chicago?
1: Yeah, so Chicago native, um, grew up on the South Side, um, you know, attended Chicago. Oh, Public South Side. School. Yeah, That's South That's Michelle Side. Obama. You're, you're in yeah. your company. Yes, Love Michelle it. Obama. You know, when, um, and it's so funny, when Obama did his final speech and he said, Michelle LaVon Robinson, girl from the South Side, I had to go buy the t-shirt. So I have the, the t-shirt. <laughs> that says Michelle Levon Robinson girl from the south side because I was just like yes yeah. Um, so yeah grew up um, went to public Chicago public schools you know it's just so funny because I feel like now as an adult I realize how unique of a introduction to education that I had as a black kid um, because I went to um, Hale Washington Elementary School on the south side which was like a historic school and like essentially a museum at that time you know in the you know, late 90s, early 2000s when I was there. And I had all black teachers with the exception of one, right? And that is seeming to be unheard of now as I'm sort of like out of Chicago um, in different spaces in the education space. Um, And so I think that was unique um, experience now that I'm in hindsight looking back because it was just black culture all around, right? Like you knew of Mm. all the historic, very important black people that had done amazing things in Chicago um, and we had the DuSable Museum and you know, did a lot of things in community that was very much around Black culture and being inundated as a kid in Black culture and really not realizing that, like, every Black kid in America isn't having this similar experience in their early introduction to education. Um, And so very, you know, now privileged to have had that sort of early introduction to having Black teachers that believed in me, um, that saw that I was good at math and science and and, and recommending me for certain Camps, um, that I otherwise wouldn't have had an opportunity to participate in as just like a kid on the South Side. Um, I come, you know, my parents were always like, hey, if you can figure out how to get to the camp, you can go, right? You know, as long as they, you know, they were both, you know, working parents. And so as long as you can figure out a way to get there, you could go. Um, and so had an opportunity to go to a lot of different programs and camps growing up as a kid and also just get off of the South Side of Chicago. I had sisters who were away at college and university so I got to go to siblings weekend for example at the University of Illinois at Champaign when my sister um, went there initially as a engineering major. Um and I got to participate in an engineering program over a weekend at the university as like a seventh grader. Right. And so for me it was all of it was all of this sort of like just innovative black culture, but then all of this sort of like access through proximity to other people to math and science and nurturing of that math and science sort of like interest at an early age um, in my educational experience. Um, was really, really good for me. And then subsequently um, I go to high school and then I moved my sophomore year of high school to Indiana to live with my sister, who at that time was in nursing school um, and finished my last two years of high school at a school in Indiana. And it was night and day difference coming from a... You know, somewhat racially diverse school in Chicago, um, but still like over 70 percent African-American students to a school in Lafayette, Indiana, which at that time was like less than five percent African-American students. Mm. Right next right next to um, Purdue University. Um, And so a lot of, um, appreciation for my background, um, sort of growing up really inundated in black culture because I was able as a young person to go to a different school in a different state and see that, oh my goodness, these black kids have not had any of this similar sort of understanding of just like black American history and like, just like, um, didn't have that same appreciation, I think. And I also think, um... Immediately when I transferred in, my counselor tried to put me in like um, pre-algebra, and I was in like the IB program in high school. I was in geometry and had already <laughs> taken algebra, and she wanted to put me in like a remedial pre-algebra. And so I saw firsthand right away the low expectations set in this different environment for Black students to to believe that somehow either because I was Black or because I was transferring from Chicago public schools that I did not have the aptitude as a sophomore to go into a geometry course and that I needed this remedial pre-algebra course and then you look at the class because you know I went to it maybe like once and I was like absolutely not and it's a slew of black kids and then you go and you're in the geometry class and there's like almost no black kids that's at gray level in the geometry class. So I think that opened my eyes, not really knowing how to define it in that moment as a high schooler, but having had that experience looking back, sort of having those initial introductions again to the inequity in education, um, even as a high school student myself.
0: You know, it's interesting. Like first, noting the contrast right of mm-hmm. your childhood where you know cuz i grew up in new mexico i'm i am multiracial
1: uh-huh. um
0: latina and indigenous uh, native american as well as as black and uh, there were no black kids there was mostly latinos because i'm from new mexico but there were no black kids and we certainly did not get exposed to uh you know african american history for sure i mean i mm-hmm. i i I can't even recall an instance and none of my teachers were black, not one. And I actually mm-hmm. had racist teachers. Like my kinder- my kindergarten teacher was the only teacher I think I loved. After that, it was downhill from there. And it's so true. I was actually held back a year because, mm-hmm. and I was smarter I was really incredibly smart and I also loved science. It's not math. Math was not and still is not my 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 favorite subject and mm-hmm. and maybe I'm not giving myself enough credit. But, you know, there there was this idea that I didn't learn as well as the others because frankly, we as students, we don't learn we don't learn the same as others. You know, the way that they teach mm-hmm. You know, across the board for fifty kids is not always going to get everybody. To me, I just was bored. I had already mm-hmm. like I I felt like mm-hmm. I mean I already knew what they were talking about. I read at home. This is boring. But um, they they actually you know they kind of put me back. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to hear your story. You know that you transitioned from the, completely the opposite of what you were experiencing, mm-hmm. where you felt like you belonged. Right. Right. And yeah. then you come over uh-huh. to another place where they're like, Oh, you're like, here's the check marks. You're going without even testing you. Right. Right. They didn't test you.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So I think that, I mean, one, I'm, that just makes me upset. And I know this is old history for you, but I'm just like, I don't right. know I, I, wish I could go back in time and, and show them what for, but you know, but it's, it's a, it's a testament to the educational system. Mm-hmm. It's, and it hasn't changed.
1: Mm-hmm. It, it hasn't changed, you know, and, and, and what I think I was, was most shocking to me is just like how Black students and Black parents in that system just accepted it. I was like, oh, mm-hmm, no. Yeah. And my mm-hmm. sister was like, I was like, you got to come up to the school right now because we're not having this. <laughs> right? And so I've never been one to sort of just accept these low expectations. And I think it's because like my fifth grade teacher, who was the only white teacher I had in, in sort of elementary school in that K-8th grade, and even her... Um, I mean, I would say I used to be terrible and act fool in her class, but she, w- she would say to me, Cynthia, <laughs> you're bored. Cynthia, you're yeah, bored. This yeah. isn't challenging. And she would give me extra additional work that was beyond the fifth grade level. And she was the first person to actually introduced me to Harry Potter. And then after that, like I was reading just like the longest of longest chapter books, right? <laughs> and so I had my seventh grade teacher. He was also like, yeah, you're bored. You understand this math. And so gave me additional math to do beyond that. And the same with my eighth grade teacher, you know? And so I think when you have that nurturing environment early and people can just identify that you're just acting out because you are bored because you are advanced Mm -hmm. and this isn't challenging to you and your mind is just all Mm -hmm. over the place because you're curious and like you need something to really stimulate your learning um, and really fostering that instead of saying oh they're not getting it this way so it must be something wrong with them and I think it took black teachers for me to have that experience. Right. And I think even my white teacher worked in a primarily black environment. Right. Which is not ever really the case. So she yeah. adapted that same mentality of nurturing black kids in a way that you do not see, you know, traditionally white teachers in traditionally majority white schools or even majority African African American schools, right? If majority of the staff is white, you just don't see that desire to to nurture each child individual specialness, if you will. Yeah. and I think that's that's what i what I know now, right? What I'm able to articulate now, just looking through my experience, but also still hearing the experience of my black students today,
0: you know i it's 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 really. I don't think that we often collectively just sit and really think about the educational system and how it is failing black and Brown students. And, 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 you know, we, we sometimes say, say, you know, Oh, there's not enough black teachers or, Oh, you know, Kids are, uh, Black students, Black and brown mm-hmm. students aren't graduating at the same rate or the, the, the high enough percentage. Well, look at what we are, look at the institution that we are immersed in. It needs to change. Mm-hmm. Yeah and I think it's real easy
1: we do this thing very easily in America where we just blame marginalized people for their own set of <laughs> material conditions right so yeah. of course it's easy to pivot and say this kid just is not worthy instead of checking ourselves and saying why isn't the onus on me as an educator to make sure each of my children are educated
0: thank you thank you thank you <laughs> you know i'm i'm just like yes you know because yes. i was that i was that student you know cynthia i was that student and i felt like my teachers gave up on me. I mm-hmm. felt felt like my principals gave up on me. I felt I, I mean I literally felt like people gave up on me as a, as a child in middle school and, and then in high school. And I had no um there was no reason to keep going. Like I hadn't because the the system had failed me and they didn't mm-hmm. they didn't see that I was actually I love your the your use of specialness and my uniqueness mm-hmm. and my my real talent and my am I real uh, you know, intelligence that I had. Mm-hmm. Um, so those things weren't fostered. But I I love to, I, I love to hear that, you know, there were people that saw that you had this aptitude for math and sciences. Mm-hmm. Yep. Can you recall like the first instance where you were exposed to, to like science or math? And you were like, yeah, I like this. Yeah.
1: It was fourth grade. And I can recall it vividly because my childhood best friend and I had been in kindergarten through fourth grade. And I don't think I was a, um, I was not a quiet student. I was sort of the, when I, I would say when I got to fourth, fifth, sixth, kind of right in that pivotal pre middle school, um, environment, I got real sort of like suck on this idea of things being fair, right? Like I got into my it's not fair stage, right? And so I was really competitive, I would say, you know, and I think that's like the natural of things. And so I was very competitive. And so I would always me and my best friend would always compete. And we had a fourth grade teacher who was a black man. And in all of in my k eighth career, I had three black male teachers, right? Like, which is oh, kind of wow. unheard
0: of. I have right? never <laughs> had a black male teacher ever. Yes.
1: And he was, like, young in his, like, 20s, and he was, like, a hot teacher. And we were, like, fourth grade, and we think he's so cute. Hormones are raging. And so Mr. Estes was the fourth grade teacher, and he would have these math competitions. Right. So I'm like, oh, this isn't fair. Right. Because, of course, I need to get the highest score. and I need to win everything. And I'm going to be the best and super competitive. And he would have these math competitions. But they were like, we would move all of the desks to the side and we would line up and then we would have to race to the front of the room and hit his hand and answer the math problem and it was mm. like I'm gonna I'm gonna win every time and that is the moment that I just like I think I just realized that like I just love math right the, the challenge of it the thinking about it in real time you know the idea of how he set it up to be a healthy competition or just how he set it up to not just have us answering problems on a board right as a young black male teacher right in the early 2000s and so for me um I, that That is definitely the moment where I think I fell in love with math. And I was much more of a math girl before I was a science girl. I think science kind of came in high school. But I loved math. And I always wanted to do additional math, hard math, challenging things. And in the state of Illinois, we at that moment took the Iowa standardized assessment, right, the Iowa test, right, the standardized test yeah. Test that also was issued in the state of Iowa, and so I would get my scores back every year, and I would be in like the 95th or 99th percentile, right? And we would all compare our great our, our our standardized test scores. Oh, look, I got higher than you, and then you got higher than me. And I would always score the highest in math. And so I think again all of that validation all of that validation early that like showed me that like I was capable um mm. I, I i think that is definitely the the moment i just fell in love with math and i think 5th grade is when i fell in love with reading when my teacher gave me a harry potter book right <laughs> um and i just can continue and and, and i think 8th grade i was the class valedictorian in 8th grade and i was supposed to do the graduation speech and i kind of wrote up some bs cuz i was like completely checked out it's like this is stupid like I'm just waiting for this to be over so I can go to high school Um, and my teacher knew that and she was the one that had recommended me for some math and science camps at the UIC prior to my eighth grade year and you know she ripped it up in my face the first version of my speech (laughs) and she said you're better than this you know and Mm. so I just can remember so many instances of people my teachers early on looking at me and seeing potential and challenging that potential and not letting me check out. They just was not going to let me check out, right? Like you're you're better than this. You can do this. Um, And I think when I got to high school, especially when I went to a majority white high school at that point, I just, I didn't have, I didn't feel that same level of support. So I didn't take as much chances. I didn't take as many risks in that environment as I think I would have if I would have felt that level of people believing in me, truly deeply believing in my ability to be successful.
0: Yeah, that's, it's so fascinating listening to that educational, especially, you know, your early educational journey. Mm-hmm. And I'm not gonna lie, like, I'm low key, like loving the fact that your love of math is, is associated with a, a a young black man. Yeah, a, a, young, black he was male a young
1: black male teacher. <laughs> and Mr. Essie's was male good. We were like fourth grade acting a fool, you know, doing what fourth graders do. And um, yeah, have he you was ever
0: doing... Have you ever found him again? Have you ever tracked him down? And so said, I've,
1: you? I've, connected back with my fifth grade teacher she actually has a charter school in Chicago now that I've been able to work with her at her her public charter um but I'm still looking for Mr. Estes um it's so funny because so many of my childhood friends that still live in Chicago say that they just see him out all the time um and at that time my fifth grade teacher also was in her early 20s right so I mean um they're kind of just now in this space where they now have you know 10 year olds themselves
0: yeah
1: um so yeah definitely someone I want to reach back out to um and then even just the our elementary school pen principal, Dr. Lewis, um, was just a black woman that I think also deeply believed in black children. And she passed not too long ago um, as well, but was able to reconnect with her prior to her passing. Um, So, yeah, I I think I had a very unique, very special experience as a black kid in America, um, being able to really be inundated in black culture with black teachers. And I think that made all the difference
0: for me. I mean, I'm I'm kind of I and mean, everybody knows I'm an emotional person. Like I'm kind of I I have tears because it's just it's it's a testament to how important it is to be represented mm-hmm. right when we're sitting in those classrooms and we know that somebody that looks like us is teaching us, is educating us, is seeing our potential and is pushing us further and mm-hmm. saying that we can keep going. Mm-hmm. So When you transitioned into this new environment in higher education, did you feel like you belonged um, among your peers and what did your entry into colleges look like?
1: Yeah, you know, I think undergrad was a little bit of a challenge. Again, I've never really been quiet. I've kind of always been outspoken because it's like when I see injustice, like I'm just gonna call it out. But then there but I also, with that being my spirit, succumb to just being silenced. Right, because it's it's in undergrad, I think there was just the emotional toll of having to constantly advocate for yourself. Right. And it's just like I just don't wanna have to go to another dean, walk into another person's office and ledge another complaint because I'm just like exhausted about it. Um I think my um, undergrad counselor had very much faith in me because I was a forensic science, chemistry, double major. So instead of having the chemistry counselor who I felt like really didn't like black kids and would discourage black kids or try to, you know, tell them to change their major, I had the forensic science advisor and she, I think, was like, Cynthia, you're more than capable, right? Like I would go with to her and I would have my little four-year plan mapped out. I'm not gonna take this or I had to like drop this course and so this is what I'm gonna do next semester to catch up, or like this is where I'm gonna be at. You know, it's a potential that I'm not gonna pass this organic too. So look, this is gonna be the new plan if I don't pull this <laughs> out this semester. And so I think she saw the level of initiative that I took with my education and the level of sincerity that I had about like I'm gonna get through this program. I'm I am not changing my major. We will make it through that. I think she had a certain level of conf. She grew a certain level of confidence in me. And so it was always very encouraging. Um, But again, I think the chemistry counselor uh, for kids who were just chemistry majors was more into sort of talking women. And it was a woman. She was a woman was more into talking women and minorities into other majors. And we, and I started um, as a freshman with two really good friends. So I was a freshman, generation, um, scholar. I got a first generation scholarship. And so I went to a summer bridge program and it was other people who were sort of first generation who was doing the bridge that had got some other level of scholarship. So we went to campus early. Um, And so it was me, um, one of my other friends who was a white girl, and then one of my Latina friends who was Hispanic. And we were like the three stooges all freshman year in our forensic program, (laughs) chemistry double major, trying to stick it through. And so by junior year, both of them had dropped out. Out of the program, right, like change their major. And so here I was as a junior saying, like, maybe, like, I just need to pivot to, like, and at that moment, I was working at a community center um, running a math and science tutoring federal program. And I was like, oh, I should just go and do nonprofit management Um, because I love working with kids. I love the idea of working um, in the education space. But it was just something that would not let me give up, Um, even though it was hard even though there was this sense of isolation. Um, I remember my junior year, because we were forensic science, we had to take about as many communication and public speaking and criminal justice courses as science courses, right? Like, it was this posh of sort of coursework. And I had a uh, public testimony um, class, and it was a process ex prosecutor who was a professor, and I remember my very f- first speech that I gave in that public testimony class and presentation in paper, and he told me that like it, like it was the worst speech he had ever heard, and the paper was like the worst paper he had ever read. Oh wow! And I remember literally seriously contemplating just just at that moment saying that maybe this isn't going to be for me um, and wanting to give up and just shrinking. I can remember going to that class for the rest of the semester and trying as much as possible to simply be invisible, right? Like, well, if he doesn't see me, then maybe I'm not here. And then somehow maybe I can just make it through. But also spent hours upon hours in the speaking lab to improve my speech, right? Because, like, I'm a kid from Chicago. Like sometimes I don't have R's, right? Like, you know, I did not sound <laughs> like the white yeah. people. Like I, I sounded, my diction is just never going to be the same, right? Um, But trying to some level improve my speech. And that was a hot subject for me because even though I was always smart and bright, I was in speech therapy all the way through eighth grade. And so had had significant speech issues um and pronunciation issues already. And so it was just like I just can remember that semester and all of these deep insecurities coming back and and me just just going silent, right? Like I just mm-hmm. stopped advocating for myself and I just said, let me just put my hand down and get through. And then like at the end of the semester, he came to me and I was in the student lounge and I'm like, oh I hope he don't see me. I hope he don't see me. And he comes in and he says, Cynthia, I just want to let you know that you have been the most improved student I have ever had. And I was like, I don't know if that makes me feel any better. Right? Like when yeah. I think about the emotional toll. Mm. Because you took... had to
0: lose your voice. It sounds like like you had to lose your voice, become invisible, and, and, and not be seen for him to recognize you. Of right. course you don't feel better. It
1: was like, I don't know that that makes me feel any better, that I'm your most improved student, right? And I was proud of myself for like, you know, I guess assimilating to his standard of Mm. what you should sound like in public testimony. And Mm. then I had a judge who at that time was actually in the running to be on the Indiana Supreme Court who was in my next public testimony class. And he would always say, at the end of the day, jurors want to be able to relate to you for you to be credible. So essentially that means if you're a black girl and you sound black and you talk black and you got all the mannerisms of a black girl, then you're not going to be received as an expert in the same way that if a white man takes the stage. And although that's unfortunate, that's just the world that we live in. Um, And this is prosecutors and judges that's saying this around expertise. And it it just showed me that I was going to always you know, potentially walk into a courtroom and, and, and immediately, um, have a challenge to my credibility, have a challenge to my authenticity, Mm -hmm. have a challenge to my ability, um, to be an expert. Um, and that was hard and it was happening all at the same time of the Trayvon Martin, um, murder and the trial of George Zimmerman, which I watched nonstop. Right. And I saw how, like, his girlfriend and her diction and her dialect was just scrutinized. I mean, just scrutinized publicly as she took the stand because she sounded different, right? And, oh, she's Mm. not credible because she sounds different. So I have all of these competing things that's happening in college and undergrad Um, that just, like, overwhelmed me to a point where I think there was a certain section of it that I just kind of lost my voice and— and and just kind of put my head down and just got the work done.
0: I'm so <laughs> oh my God. It's just, you know, it's stories like this. I'm such an empath. I mean, it just it's like I'm sitting there with you, like while you're in yeah. those classes and you're being told, you know, like, yay, good for you because you've assimilated. And right. you know, to know that you you came from this very outspoken. Background of this is who I am, and take me or leave me. No, I am not going to be in remedial classes. Right. You are not going to hold me back to right. finally get to higher education and say, like, you know, I feel defeated, but I just need to coast through so I can get through. Yeah. And how many of us, you know, how many of us who are underrepresented, who are marginalized, who are black and brown? Feel Mm -hmm. this way and just give up. Just give up. I don't sound like them. I don't look like them. Mm -hmm. I don't act like them. I am Mm -hmm. not them. And therefore, Mm -hmm. I am not a credible expert. I can have all the expertise in the world. I can have the same education, even better. Mm -hmm. I can score in the 95th percentile Mm -hmm. as you have. And still, that's not good enough. Right. Of course, you're going to feel defeated. Yeah.
1: And it just was no recourse. Right. Either like it was no recourse. It, you know, you can go and make a complaint and, and, and say this and say that. But at the end of the day, like the system was going to stand.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. And they were going to keep their jobs.
1: Is. And yeah. and so it was up to me either to like suffer through it in my own way and still get to where I want it to be. Um or to give up. And, and I was almost there and I understood why so many people changed their major because it was hard. And there was a sense of isolation, especially after most of my female friends, like went a different route, um, and, and changed their major and the people that I was closest with, cause now I wasn't in classes with them anymore. Um, and then I think, I just think all in all, it was, it was like, you know, The black students in science was so far and few in between that, like, if you guys didn't come in at the exact same time, it was going to be hard for you to not be the only black kid in the class sometimes, Mm -hmm. most times. And you had some professors who, like, literally didn't want girls in their class, right? Like, Like, people had told me, oh, don't take this professor because, like, he, he doesn't like women in his class. And then I took this professor and I ended up dropping it that semester because I was overwhelmed. Um, and I just had some personal tragedies kind of happening in my real life. And I mean, he would just make all type of derogatory, sexist jokes throughout every lesson all the time. And it's just like, how does this man get to keep his job? And he would never meet with any girls. He would like never allow any girls to meet with him in his office hours or in his office. He would literally say, I
0: can't meet with you. Where's he at? Let me go get him. No. Um, <laughs> it was crazy. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, and this is, the, you know, and I'm so glad we're talking about this, Cynthia, because, you know, we we don't get to look at, at our educational system through the magnifying glass like this. And and yours mm-hmm. is such a unique, I mean, it's so yeah. unique. I love actually the contrast. So I'm so glad we're having this conversation. Yeah. We're going to take a break for today's pioneering Women in Steam segment, I will be back with Cynthia Chapel. Today's pioneering woman is Fei Fei Lee. Lee is a Chinese-born American computer scientist, nonprofit executive, and writer. She is the Sequoia Capital Professor of Computer Science at Stanford University. Lee is a co director of the Stanford Institute for Human Centered Artificial Intelligence and a co director of the Stanford Vision and Learning Lab. In 2017, she co founded AI for All, a nonprofit organization working to increase diversity and inclusion in the field of artificial intelligence. Her research expertise includes artificial intelligence, machine learning, deep learning, computer vision, and cognitive neuroscience. She was the leading scientist and principal investigator of ImageNet. In May 2020, Lee joined the board of directors of Twitter as an independent director. Thank you for your pioneering contributions, Fei-Fei Lee. Back with Cynthia Chapel talking about how important it is for young girls and black and brown students to be exposed to STEM. And we're gonna get into all the magic she creates in the world with black girls do STEM. Yes.
1: So
0: Cynthia, you are the founder of Black Girls Do STEM. That's how I got connected with you. So can you uh-huh. tell us more about what your organization does and how it came to be?
1: Yeah, so Black Girls Do STEM grew out of just my reflection, the reflections I just shared with you. yeah, um, And also mainly my reflections as a graduate student when I was in graduate school. And what I realized is that I was one of two American-born graduate students in my graduate program. And all of the other students of color, which was a significant amount, but they were all international students. Um, so what I realized that, like, there just was, like, a subset of black American um, uh, Americans in the graduate program. Um, And that was true for a lot of different schools in um, the St. Louis region um, in graduate programs. And I can specifically remember applying to several schools and not being accepted mainly because they felt like I didn't know exactly what type of research I wanted to do. But this is like right out of undergrad, one year working in industry. Um, and then going back to graduate school, and there was this expectation that you have to know exactly what you want to do and what research and what researcher and what lab you want to join. And I just kind of wasn't sure what I wanted to do for as research. Um, And so it really, black girls to STEM, I was doing a lot of outreach as a graduate student in the name of gender equity, in the name of introducing more girls to math and science. And I just kept noticing that there seemed to be a lack of public education, um, majority African-American schools and school districts participating in a lot of these conferences that was happening through universities or happening through science organizations in the region. And so for me, it was like, I really just want to be a support to you know, black women and girls coming behind me in STEM and really be about access. And so Black Girls Who STEM started about access um, and it has gone from access to educational equity, right? To really calling mm. out the system and everything that we do. And we've now developed a full advocacy agenda and we have a stake in, in sort of like this idea of how do you transform education uh, from the inside out and the outside in, Right. Um, and so we work as a community-based program since 2018 because I just went to community sites and I said, hey, you know, in majority African-American communities, and I said, hey, might you be interested in us coming to do a STEM workshop for girls on a Saturday? And everyone said yes. And it was such a great response. Um, and by the end of 2018, it was myself and two other people. And... It was like 20 community sites saying, hey, can you come do a STEM workshop here um, with some girls in our community? And so it kind of just took on a life of its own. Um, at that time, I was still working full time in industry, and so I had no plans of 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 this becoming a nonprofit, I just wanted to give back. And I wanted to give back to the kids that needed it the most, to the kids that I saw missing from all of these other activities in our region. Um, And so I went directly to the source, right? I went to community centers, right? Where kids are already frequent, right? Where they're used to going there. It's in the community they live in. And I told everyone, like, we'll never be a program that's run on a university campus. Like, no knock to anyone who's doing that. But like, our program, will always, run you know co-located at a community site where youth programming happens um places where students are comfortable with that they already frequent that they already know um and we're going to take the program and stem to them instead of having them leave their natural habitats um, to Mm. go to a university or go somewhere to some other community um because that was my experience as a kid like going to big universities and still maybe not being the only black kid, but being like the only kid from my neighborhood. Right. And all of the other kids, parents work at the university or they live in another different neighborhood or a suburb, you know. And so really, you know, had so many parents in 2018 when we sat down and talked and launched surveys say, Yeah, I put my daughter in this coding program out in West County, uh, which everyone knows in St. Louis is a primarily white, wealthy county, um, but I couldn't find anything in my neighborhood is what she said. I couldn't find anything in my neighborhood. And she she was like, and my daughter came back after the first day and said she didn't want to go back and said that nobody talked to her, not even the other girls. And she just like worked Mm -hmm. on the activity herself by herself the whole day. And she felt alone and like she doesn't desire to go back. So we... We opt out, right? So parents, one, take their kids out of their natural habitat um, to get a, edu- get access to a program, to an education, to something that's not available in their community. Uh, and sometimes parents force it, but it ruins our confidence as girls. It ruins our confidence as black yeah. and brown students because we walk into a place where we can feel that we're not wanted or we can absolutely, like understand our difference, right? Mm-hmm. And sometimes when you can't when you can't understand why no one is talking to you, it's it's inevitable. It's because you're the black kid mm-hmm. from North County, right? Which is the primarily, you know, black county in, in St. Louis area. Right. And so we have these silos that we know that exist in our region. And so I just wanted and to And everywhere. Like,
0: I mean, you could take this, this community and drop it into this community and drop it into that community. And this is what we experience. This is what we go through.
1: And, and so for me... The access and the design of it being community based at respective community sites in black neighborhoods grew out of like talking to parents. It grew out of my own reflections, but really talking to parents and also really talking to these community centers that said, no one has ever come and asked us to do something like this for kids. Right? Mm-hmm. Like we don't we don't, we don't have the expertise to do it and we don't know anyone who can. And so for me, it was about like black our black youth need this and specifically our black girls at that middle school age where it's so easy to get distracted with other things when they don't have something else to really engage with, really hold their curiosity and their interests. Um, and then just me just being a black girl myself, I have a, um, brother organization and I'm their sister organization here in St. Louis that's called men of code that works with African American and, um, other minority boys. And like, sometimes we co-do things together, um, Um, with black girls to stem in that organization, but really realizing that this needed to happen um, because it was, it was filling a gap. Um, And Mm -hmm. so this is also why I made the decision to have it launch into a nonprofit um, because it was a need. And I saw that like, if we go away because we don't have capacity and we can't keep doing this on the level that's needed right? We're either going to do it or we're not, right? And so I decided to really do it wholeheartedly and launch into that nonprofit space um, and build out a full curriculum and some more structure around how we operate. And so I think that's how we've gone from just literally thinking about access and accessibility to also thinking about, like, how are we part of a bigger conversation of educational
0: equity? I love that. You know, it's about, and I've said this many, many times, it's about meeting people where they are at. You know, that they're going to be the most invested and absorbed because, you know, when you take somebody out of their environment and you drop them into a place, like you said, you know, going to university, like you're being shipped off to go learn something, Mm -hmm. you're going to feel intimidated and out of place and you're not going to feel as invested to learn, do the actual activity Mm -hmm. and or you have that experience of, Mm -hmm. you know, nobody wants to play with you. You're playing by yourself, Um, you know, and it's it's, and it
1: happens all too often.
0: Yeah, it does. And I admire you for, you know, championing for us, you know, little girls like me, who didn't have the, you know, that kind of exposure, you know, so when you're not saving the world by ensuring that we have more black women innovating the planet one day, like, what is your day job? Do you have a day job?
1: Um, so I had decided to leave um, the manufacturing industry in December of 2020, and I am wow. currently right now invested 100% in leading Black Girls to STEM oh, um, and really building out sustainability and working our three-year strategic plan. Um, so yeah, that's that's what I'm doing right now, full
0: time. So, I mean, we've gone through a crazy experience during this <sighs> yes. pandemic. You know, I mean, Wonder Woman Tech has, I mean, we're st- we're in another pivot. I mean, I, I thought I had 2020 mapped out. Best year ever. Pandemic came in and just wiped it completely off the face of the earth. Yep. And now I have uh, 2021 mapped out. Okay, now, now we're going to virtual. We're going to try to do some hybrid. And then just this week, I have to revise everything in it. And it really set me back because I'm just like, I mean, it's a moving target. It doesn't feel like, like there's no, there's nothing that feels certain to me today. So like, how has, how, I mean, are we, can we bond over this or how has, you know, this, this pandemic affected you and how are you uh, like pivoting? (laughs)
1: Yeah. You know, 2020, I would say was a very hard year for me. Um, I'm already sort of a high anxiety person. I got always, I have always had a therapist pretty much a significant portion of my adult life. I'm a high achiever. I am a visionary. I believe in big, bold things. And I think 2020 with the pandemic hitting and people dying, I mean, just like left and right. And then Mm -hmm. with the murder of George Floyd before our eyes, um, and then all of these new pushes on, um, diversity, equity and inclusion and all of these companies like I just was really struggling at that point I'm still working in industry um And I'm still being expected to show up to work and produce and do quality work. And I feel like I'm drowning. Right. I feel like Mm -hmm. I got to a point and it's all of these magazines, all of these science and engineering magazines asking me to, Hey, will you make a statement on this? Or um, would you, will you make a statement in regards to like George Floyd and like, you know, you know, my employer just sort of like expecting everyone to pretend that you know the pandemic isn't happening, and 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 a lot of the of the stress of other things isn't happening. So I feel like for me, the pandemic brought a lot of stress, and I would say I was borderline sort of slipping into a depression. Um, last year, I did slip into one.
0: Yeah, I mean, I did.
1: It was just this sense of terror, right? It was just this overwhelming sense of fear. I mean, like, I would walk out the door and just get anxious, right? Like, this idea of so much uncertainty and then, like, this fear that, like, black people are still, even in the midst of a pandemic, being killed at the hands of the police in the midst of all of this uncertainty. And just, like, the Mm -hmm. cruelty of it all was just, like, crushing, right? Because it was like, oh, my goodness. But as I sort of like continued, you know, I feel like my therapist kept throwing me life jackets. She was she was throwing me the the lifesaver all year and, and kept pulling me pulling me back. But I think it was a tough evaluation of like, if this isn't the moment to pivot and to do the life saving freedom and liberation work that you desire to do, there will never be a better moment. Yes,
0: yes, right? like, yes, yes, yes. Yes. This yes.
1: anxiety, this fear, this sense of being overwhelmed and just sinking, right? I I told people for a moment I started to believe that maybe we couldn't be free. For a moment, right? I mm-hmm. that that revolutionary in me was almost defeated. Right. Mm-hmm. And 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 I just had to come back to who I am and say that like This is the moment for me to truly step 100% into this life-saving work and this hard work and this hard work that I want to be doing on behalf of Black community and anti-Black racism and, and social justice and racial equity. And so there will never be a better moment, right? And so I think... And realizing that and talking through that a lot, um, it really got me to this point of like, okay, I need to pivot and I need to hop into this work that is my work, that is going to be my contribution to radically reimagine our society in this education space. Yes. Uh, And I need to do it. And so for me, that is what led to the decision um, to leave corporate and to really step into this full force and say, this is what I'm doing.
0: Double down. Double down on yeah. your legacy and your vision for our community. Yeah, it's 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 so, you know, I needed to hear this too. Just even you right now, because you know, we're we're not even a year from that trauma, and we're in another trauma. You know, we're 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 Man. sitting in we're sitting in the space where we're we're hoping to witness justice happen wow. and it fucking happens again Rugged where another it. one of our brothers is murdered murdered by the police right and mm-hmm. how you know just the other day i was like how like i can't even look at the news anymore i can't look at social media anymore because it's like how do i stay present and and as you said not give up hope that we're never going to see Freedom, right? And that was, that was so powerful yeah. that you said that.
1: I mean, um, I was like, that,
0: because it feels that way. It feels like, you know, we just took leaps years back, right?
1: It, it feels that way. And, you know, and I think I always think in this diversity space and this anti racism work, you know, we say white supremacy reorganizes. And I think we're watching white supremacy reorganized and try to maintain itself in a society where we're we're hitting enough critical mass of people to say no more right and i think what yeah, we see yeah. is this doubling down of white dominance and white supremacy fighting back against progress yeah um and you know and so i think and being in relationship with people in the work and understanding that it gets you to understand that like, you can't just give up, right? You can't just sink, you can't, because this pushback and this fight back shows us that we made progress. It shows oh, yeah. us that we're moving that needle, that pivotal needle in the, in the direction of progress. Um, and so we can't give up and we just got to continue to be diligent about the work and our, in all of our respective areas, right? Like some people are going to stay on that front line. Some people are going to stay behind the scenes, but as long as we're all moving forward.
0: I love that. You know, the old ways are dying. The old yeah. ways are dead and we yeah. need more people around us who concur. Um, I did not yeah. write that. Human clothed it, but it's it's something, it, it's a passage that I constantly think about because I'm like, the old ways are dead. Yep. They they're extinct. They are extinction. And this is that it's interesting that you said this because I had the same thought in my head that you are watching the this white supremacy double down
1: as mm-hmm. they yep. like
0: try to not go quietly in that dark night, but into yeah. that dark night, they shall go.
1: I yeah, am go so away. here
0: for it. Yeah, they will, you know these people, people were... yeah yeah we like we they will retreat and I know that with every fiber of my being because the, these generations that 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 you and i and those of us in this space who are rearing up who are are, are providing access to opportunity mm-hmm. education career development mentorship funding like mm-hmm. the, we are this is our time our time is mm-hmm. now how yeah do you? find balance.
1: How, how do, you, do I how do you stay centered? How do I? Oh my goodness. So I do yoga every day. I try to get up and give myself enough time to have a good morning routine before I jump into work, jump into emails, jump into calls, you know? And so it looks like me getting up, you know, doing, a. you know, five-minute meditation, doing some yoga, drinking my first cup of tea, and really just, like, being, right, really just existing, and so I think that has truly, truly helped me um, go about my work throughout the day, and it also looks like staying in community with other like-minded people, Um, and I think that has really helped me build out a successful team, but not only build out a successful team, realize that, like, the world, the weight of the world is not on my shoulders individually, but there is, like, mountain movers among us um and so I think that kind of helps you continue in your work and I just think like between therapy between meditation and between like just being an avid reader and taking the time to just do things I enjoy um I was, I would say travel, but I actually just started back traveling. Um, So that's probably going to be incorporated moving forward in the 2021 year. You know, I opened 2020 and I was like, I'm going on a trip every, every month in 2020. And that changed rapidly. Um,
0: (laughs) Yeah. So I think.
1: The centering is really just like continuing to understand that like you don't have to be superwoman and get it all done in one day. And I think that allows me to pace myself and it allows me to realize um, that tomorrow will come and you'll get another opportunity to continue the work. Um, so I think it's a mindset shift that, that I've had to have um, around giving myself time to just be um, and not always be working.
0: I love that. And I love that you give yourself a morning ritual. I've talked to several folks who say the same thing. And it's 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 like reiterates to me because sometimes I, I mean, I try and then sometimes I'm like already in it. I'm already in my day. And then before you know it, it's late in the day. And I'm like, I took no time for myself. So I love that reminder. Mm-hmm. You know, we love being vulnerable on the show. So I'd love you, Cynthia, to share something with us that you haven't shared with anyone else before.
1: Oh, share something I haven't shared with anyone else before. Hmm. I don't know. Yeah, this might be something um, that I haven't shared with anyone else before. You know, this idea that like, that I that that is my hope that we as a American society will move forward without these hierarchies and without these um, systems of oppression operating. And I think when I say all of us, I also mean white people, right? Um, and my fear, my fear is that even as progress comes there there will still be systems of of oppression operating more or like like more in the in the crevices and so i think i just have this hope i just have this hope that like bitterness will not exist in a equitable society that we want to create Um, And I don't think I've ever said that out out loud, that, like, as we move forward, that we're open and malleable and vulnerable ourselves as people, regardless of, of what has happened to black and brown people in this country. Um, And so I hate to say like racial healing because I think you can't have healing without redemption and truth. But like, yeah. I really, I think my hope really is a sense of an equitable society that doesn't hoard animosity.
0: Yeah, I hear you, sister. I hear you. Well, I have that yeah. same hope. Thank you yeah. for sharing that. That takes a lot to like really tap in and. And to go deep like that and to, mm-hmm. to express that kind of beautiful utopia. Yeah, yeah you these, know. I it's, mean, yeah, it's but it, it, it's, it's, it's something that I think many of us share, though. Like we, mm-hmm. especially those of us in this work, because if we didn't believe in that vision, we wouldn't be here. Yeah. So given mm-hmm. your amazing journey and looking back, would you take the easy road or the road less traveled? and why?
1: Um, I would take the road less traveled, but I also push back on the idea of an easy road. <laughs> you know, I think like we champion our individuality in America to a fault. And there is something to be learned mm. as we stand on the shoulders of greatness, as we stand on the shoulders of icons and legends who have done this work and and laid down this path before us, right? And so I want to honor that and and say that taking the the easy road or the road that that like, everyone takes and walking behind greatness um and adding to that is always not not a bad thing but I think I would take the road less traveled just because like as my own personal self I am a creator. I am an innovator. So for me, the road less travel isn't necessarily about like not being a follower because there's definitely going to be people I follow and I look up to and I admire, but it's about being able to to, to go away that no one else has done and create and innovate something that hasn't been done before. Um, and so for me, I think that curiosity and that natural innovator in me is what makes me take the road less
0: traveled. So Blazey, you want to blaze the trail that other people would follow.
1: Right. Yes, absolutely.
0: I love that answer. I love that. I think that's one of my favorite answers so far, especially you talking about honoring the path that was created and laid down before us by the people, by Martin mm-hmm. Luther King. Right. You know, by Malcolm X, by you know, Nelson Mandela, like absolutely. by the people who have absolutely showed up. And, and decided to chart that trail for us, for people mm-hmm. like you and I to go part of the way and then take it another way. So, oh, so beautiful. Cynthia, I can't tell you how important this conversation was for me today. I hope that our listeners can also take a piece of inspiration as we sit here as brothers and sisters and and, yeah. and partners through through what we are experiencing in history. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that they that they feel the same way.
1: Absolutely, I think you know forward is what I like to say. I just I, I think that as we move forward, that we just continue to become a more sympathetic um, society, right? A society full full of empathy and a little bit more vulnerable um, one towards
0: another, right? I love that. Well, thank you so much, Cynthia, for being here. It has been a pleasure to talk with you Mm -hmm. and learn about your story.
1: Yes, thank you for having me. It's also been my pleasure to talk with you today.
0: Thank you so much for being here, Innovators. We'll see you next week when we take on the world one more time.